Welcome to the OMR Podcast, where we go inside the minds of the biggest names in digital and tech. My name is Scott Peterson, and I am an editor at OMR. Today, we are thrilled to welcome co-founder of The Trade Desk, Dave Pickles, to the show. If you don't know, The Trade Desk is a thriving global ad tech company based out of California. Dave sat down with OMR founder Philip Westermeyer to talk about the Trade Desk's business model, its customer base, and how the Trade Desk has managed to thrive in a market where competitors routinely fail. All of that and more right now in the OMR podcast. Welcome to the OMR podcast. Dave Pickles from the Trade Desk. Welcome. Thank you. Um, the Trade Desk, we've heard about that a little while ago at OMR because your co-founder, uh, Jeff, was on the big stage. But maybe for those who were not listening and were not in attendance, what is the Trade Desk? So the Trade Desk is a platform for buying digital media. It can be any kind of media from display ads to audio, video, connected television. You know, we look at 10 million ads a second and try to pick the right five or 10 for every advertiser on earth, which is a really hard technical problem. A lot of good fun. And, um, I mean, who buys this, these ads with your technology? Is it basically agencies or is it direct customers? What's so we, we work with agencies and aggregators, and so it doesn't have to be an agency, but most of the time it is. And that's just because it takes a while to get trained up and learn how to really use the tool effectively. We don't have a big customer service team for you know, servicing every brand directly. More and more often, though, it's like kind of a three-way relationship. We trade desk the, the brand and the agency all collaborating to try to get great results. So let's, let's get a little bit more into expert talk. We understand it's an advertising technology company that serves the demand side, like the, the, the brands and the agency that want to like invest money into, into media. Um, so you'd call that a, a DSP? Is that fair to call it a DSP? Yeah, we usually call it a buyer's platform. And we've, we've always thought that it was really important to separate the buy and the sell side when it came to digital media or any other marketplace. You know, you can't if you if you buy a house you, when you use the same agent, they have to sign lots of papers. You know, making sure you understand their conflict of interest. But in in digital media, for so long, conflict of interest was the standard, and in a lot of ways, it still is, especially inside walled gardens. But so we we said we we need buyers and sellers to be separated, and then what is the complete set of tools that you would need if you were a buyer to be super effective? Okay, um, I mean, there's been a couple of companies coming from that space in, in, I don't know, the recent five, six, seven years, none of these companies have really succeeded. How come? I mean, you are a very successful company. We look at your stock. It just went public a while ago, um, and it, it looks really good from the, I mean, you know, from everything I can see. What do you do differently? Well, so we, in, in, I've been doing this for about 10 years, and in the two years before that, I was building an ad exchange for, for Microsoft. So the first thing I did in this world was build a supply-side tool. And the whole time I was building the exchange, I was just dreaming about all the things that you could do as a buyer. You know, I was just geeking out on all the possibilities. And then we started integrating all the buyers onto our exchange, and I found out that their methods of bidding weren't very sophisticated. They kind of bid a dollar on everything or, you know, $2 if they had some special data apparently. And so that was uh, super galvanizing. For one, it was kind of offensive that we had done all this work to make it so you could pay whatever you wanted to for every impression, and all the buyers could do is bid a dollar. But then also it was like just seemed like such an obvious opportunity to, to go after, which is, you know, if there's a New York stock exchange for ads, like the first thing you want to do is go build Goldman Sachs or, or Bloomberg or, you know, some cool business on the buy side because that's where all the interesting decisions get made. And so we, over 10 years, we really haven't pivoted at all. 
from our mission, if you read our founding papers, it, we basically described exactly what we were going to do, which is there's things we believe about the future. There's things we believe about economics that are going to shape the way we're going to build this platform. And we just built to the future and got enough of it right. Okay. And, and the business model is you take a commission from every dollar that's invested through you? Yeah, there's a there's a platform fee and then, you know, there's a, a whole marketplace of other sort of value-add products that you can buy through us, which we often have a rev share on. And do do the companies also buy seats with you? I mean, so you're selling seats or it's just like when there's spend happening, then it's part of the spend? Yeah, we, we've done everything we can to be as aligned as possible with our customers. And so we haven't done a lot of complicated sort of SaaS pricing deals or anything else that that make it so that we're we're out of alignment. Instead, we just say, we'll take a percentage of spend and we'll more than earn our keep. And we have to through that, keep re-earning our, our, our worth every campaign, mm -hmm. which is great because it causes us to you know, continue to innovate and get better. I mean, you know, your major, most important clients are agencies. Um, many times I talk to people here and they are like skeptical about the role of agencies in general for you know, all kinds of reasons. They also like, sometimes don't trust that agencies have the right um, incentives or have the right mode uh, to operate, like, you know, not, not always maybe serving uh, the needs of their customers themselves. Um, what's your take on that? I mean, if your customer is like under such heavy scrutiny and pressure. So I think uh, the agency does a whole bunch of work that needs to be done. And a lot of the DSPs that tried to say, hey, we don't, we don't need an agency, their theory was that, Uh, either you're right and they don't add value or that's value that we could add ourselves and they've really found that to be difficult, that you have to actually have a lot of people to do everything that agencies do. And our approach to that was say, let's, let's let the agencies do what they do best. Let's provide them a great technology tool because we wanted to be a technology company primarily. We wanted to be able to be a smaller company to be able to really be focused. And they're, they're really two different things. Okay, so, so you also see like a, a role in the value chain for an agency many, many years down the road. Yeah, I mean, so somebody is going to do the service. I don't, I don't think that every brand is fully going to take in-house everything that the agency does for them. I think you've seen a lot of evidence of that, that a lot of companies have started to take it in-house and then in some way or another went back out of house with at least pieces of it. And you see more now what's happening is the brand wants to have a few people that are overseeing what's happening with the agencies and that are, that are guiding it, making sure they get the transparency that they need, making sure that, you know, the interests are aligned, but it, it's really, they want control. They don't necessarily want to do it all themselves because there is a whole bunch of like economies of scale that you can get inside of an agency and, you know, specializations that need to be created and every brand doing it themselves doesn't make a lot of sense. Like there is, there's just a good, a good model there. You know, your initial question was like, are agencies doing the right thing? And my theory has always been that some agency is going to do the right thing and they're going to win all the business. Okay. Um, um, do you have brands that work with you directly though? We have a, a very small number of brands that, that are actually direct with us and those are ones that kind of have never used an agency. You know, they, you know, they own the entire thing in-house for whatever reason. Um, but more and more often we talk about going upstream because we want, we want the conversation to be three-way. I think we've, we've earned enough trust in the agencies that – We're not trying to replace them. But now when we all go to the brand together, they're really happy about that. And they can bring a great story. And then we can, you know, we get the best of both worlds. We can hear directly from the brand what they're interested in uh, without any sort of translation layer. And then, uh, you know, the agency's there. We're all on the same page. The agency's ready to execute. We build the right tech. I mean, 
so so that's the value chain on the on the um, business side. If you look at the value chain on the tech side, there's like one element that's completely like trying to change the game these days, and that's that's the browser companies. Um, what's your take on that? I mean, there's so much like browser wars almost going on these days. Yeah, so it's been pretty interesting, I think, to see Google's reaction and, and Chrome's reaction to this, which I think was really good. And so you had you had Safari and Firefox kind of taking some strange positions where they're basically saying we're going to ru- ruin user experience in order to create some sort of false sense of security. And to be clear, the security in Safari is false. There, there is, it's not what the moves they've made with cookies haven't really addressed. I think the problems or the, haven't addressed the concerns that people have. And instead, they kind of just made some moves that they could make to, to try to be able to say that they were the privacy browser. And I think at Chrome, they looked at that and said, we're never going to do that. Their CEO even came out and said, we're never going to ruin user experience. We're going to find a way to make this better. And if you can count on Google to do one thing, it's to use technology to, you know, to innovate and to try to create something new. And that's, I think, what they've done with the announcements they've made. You know, we're still working through uh, adoption and implementation of, of a lot of the, the changes in Chrome. But I think it's really cool. You know, they basically said, let's be clear about what's a first party and what's a third party cookie. Let's make it obvious. Let's create ways for the advertisers to tell the consumer what data was used to target an ad, which is something you know Facebook's been able to do for a while because they control everything. Like when you click on the click on the ad and you say, "Why was I served this ad?" They can say, "Well, because you were in this group and it was these demographics and, and whatnot." And the cool part about that is then we get to go show the world uh, how they shouldn't be nervous about what we do. I think that you know there's without without that kind of transparency, I think consumers' imagines, imaginations kind of run wild in terms of what is the ad tech community doing. And we're not doing anything that should make anyone nervous. So we're really glad to have the opportunity to tell the story of, hey, it was like some basic demographics, and it's because you visited that website. It's like not a big deal. So, for, I mean, maybe one general question: Which browsers matter to you? I mean, I mean, Safari matters. Obviously, Chrome matters. Which other browser is relevant, like on on a, on a global scale? So keep in mind when you look at the macro, like the browser is becoming less and less important in itself. So so you know. There's in-app, there's video, there's audio, there's connected television, and then there's, there's browser. So it's it's a increasingly small or a smaller and smaller part of the most interesting part of advertising. It is an important part. It's great to great to have it. Chrome is the most important. I know it varies a little bit by market, but uh, you know Safari took themselves off the table effectively with the changes that they've made. And what we saw was mostly that. The advertiser's reaction was that to say was to say we're going to say Chrome is where we understand everything that's going on, and we'll assume it's about the same in Safari, or something like that. Like mm-hmm. as long as you have one of them that's doing the right thing, then you can extrapolate and try to figure out what's going on everywhere. But then also you can just shift out budgets to where it's working, so you can shift your budgets into Chrome. But th- those are the two main browsers. I mean, there's no Mozilla and everything. And, I mean, so in Germany, I know Firefox is more important, but uh, in most of the world, they're not. It really is is Chrome. Okay. Okay. Yeah, and you know, there's Brave, and there's there's a few other things, but those those are those are products that are mostly used by people that are super passionate about it. It's not really mass market mm-hmm. outside of Chrome and Safari. Do you follow like the the European rulings on on, on cookies as well? I mean, it's it's like uh, that's where many of these developments come from, right? Uh, it, uh, it's a good question. Is is the is a Safari responding to European pressure or something else when they're when they're making those changes? And you know, it, it's not like 
Chrome went and implemented GDPR in a really nice, efficient way. They didn't. It's, it's actually harder to implement a lot of the rules than it used to be. And so, yeah, you know, we follow it super closely. We're really, we're really well aligned, actually, spiritually with with GDPR and with all of it. You know, we've always thought that privacy is super important. It's a, it's been a part of what we've always cared about. And you know, there's there's three people that matter in this. There's there's content creators who need to get paid. There's consumers who don't want to have their privacy violated and want to have fewer, more relevant ads. I think everyone can kind of agree that creates a nicer experience. And then it's advertisers, and it's particularly big brands who need to continue to grow their business. And we also all benefit from that growth, like economic growth from advertising is an important thing. We are all, the European regulators, the trade desk, everybody, trying to find the right balance, trying to find technology that will make all of that work. Right now, the, the browsers aren't making that super easy. They're, they're not, I don't know why they're not more rapidly rebuilding to just uh, address the obvious requests that everyone has of them. But they're, they're going a little slow. And so it's actually – it's harder than ever for the trade desk to do the right thing for the consumer as, as hard as we try. So like in Safari, it's harder to opt out because of the changes they made. You know, what, I did a lot of work with the, the NAI in USA to create this framework where if you want out, if you want to, to tell me that you don't want ads, I want to know about it. I want to implement it to the very best of my ability and we, we still do. But now there's this blind spot with Safari. So Safari's actually got – to get a worse user experience in every way. Maybe you can like just just quickly like uh, summarize what what those browsers are doing. I mean, how did Google respond, Chrome, and, and how did Safari respond? So Safari said basically, I'm going to make a lot of decisions for the user. I I, I here at Apple know better about everything that they want. I'm not going to give them control. I'm just going to start clearing a bunch of cookies, and I'm going to call it AI, even though it's kind of not, just so that I can have cover to do whatever I want. And, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, make decisions for them, and whatever effect that has on user experience, so be it. Mm. What, what Chrome has said is, let's let's put control in the consumer's hands. Let's try to explain it. Let's give them tools to try to say, hey, I, I either do or don't care that that company is tracking me. That company is tracking me. I can get rid of the tracking pixels if I want. You know, so they've made Chrome has made a first step towards creating a better user experience for managing your own privacy. I, I would definitely say it's a half measure, and I think they would say the same thing. I, there were factions inside Google that almost got them to the place where they would just use a device ID instead of a cookie in, in, the, in the browser. And if you don't know, uh, on your phone, there's a bunch of apps, and then there's one app called either Chrome or Safari. And that browser app works different than all of the other apps. It has cookies inside of it that are this weird technology that was invented in 1994 and somehow survived. All of the other apps have a device ID that's passed across all of them, and then there's a control panel on the phone that lets you, you know, say whatever your preferences should be. And they can continue to evolve what's on that control panel. You know, they're, they're relatively simple now. But the in-app world, the new world, pretty much works right, in my opinion. That, that's how it should work, that you, you put controls in the consumer's hands, and you don't pretend – There's layers of security that don't exist. And cookies are this weird thing where, like, you give a different ID to every website and you try to pretend they're never going to swap notes and put those IDs together. And it's, a, you know, it's a, a really a strange piece of technology for where we are today. So I think, ultimately, uh, browsers are on their way to passing a device ID and the device ID controls will get better and better. I think that'll be great. The only question is what happens between here and there. 
And I think anybody who says that like cookies are going to go away, that's kind of naive because there really is no way to operate the web without cookies. You couldn't stay logged in. You can't have a shopping cart. You know, there's the third and first party distinction, but that's also something that ad tech can solve for. So, so you so you so you're thinking that even though there is this this fear in the market that there's cookies are no longer permitted, some sort of cookie will still remain and, and will not be challenged. Well, yeah. So the I know there's fear, but there's very little evidence that cookies are going away. And in fact, you know, well, I mean, they ruled it. I mean, it's it's like somebody from outside the web came and said they're no longer permitted. Well, so I, I don't think that's necessarily true. I, I think that the the thinking is evolving at every level on GDPR, and you know our our industry has made a lot of efforts to try to comply through the the uh, IAB Europe in particular with mm. the the consent framework. I know there's been a few rulings in various directions on that. It's evolving. We're continuing to evolve the framework. So we're we're we are collectively doing everything we can with the technology to try to implement the wishes of the of the European regulators and. We'll continue to try. I mean, but I mean, as you said, like without the cookie, the web is completely different, and it's maybe not even like operatable. Yeah, it, it's totally broken. So without cookies, completely, the web doesn't work. Like online shopping, forget about it. You know, e-commerce is over, uh-huh. and I don't think anybody's proposing that. Uh-huh. You know, I, I sort of think there's a there's a little bit of a mismatch with what regulators want, and then what they've written, and then what they're going to enforce. But I, I have to believe. That uh, you know, a, a internet that functions and the ability for journalism to be funded and for TV to be funded is something that uh, European regulators are interested in supporting. Do you follow? I mean, like some of the very few European attack companies. Quite. I mean, you follow Criteo, for instance. Oh yeah. I mean, they have they had an up and down swing quite a bit, right? I mean, was it also like connected to the whole? Cookie and, and, and legislation. So Critio had a, a very different business model than we have. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, they are a retargeting company, and, and I think that was a huge part of that ride that they had, which was you know they only get paid when they get a click, and if they can't track a click, they don't get paid, and so that caused them to um, you know be kind of really aggressive with with how they dealt with Safari, and they got into a little bit of a back and forth with Google, right, where they they implemented some technology to try to make it work the way it used to, and Apple closed that loophole, and then they found another one, Apple closed that loophole. That was never a game that we wanted to play. You know, I'm not in the business of trying to say that Apple can't do what they want with their browser. And because of our business model, we didn't have to. You know, we are the agent for the for the buy side, and we're it's our job to look out for their interests. It's not our job to, to charge them for clicks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So but, but, but essentially what's happening is I think there's this even more of a consolidation in attack, I mean, there used to be hundreds and different companies and uh, money being invested into that space, and it looks like it's like all coming down to two, three, maybe four players. Is, is that the same? Do you see the same development? Yeah, but that, that's mostly from economics, not from anything having to do with cookies. So mm-hmm. we, I've been saying for a long time that there's there's only going to be a few DSPs, a few a few buy side platforms, because if you think about it, I have to look at 10 million ads every second. Whether I have ten dollars in revenue or ten million dollars in revenue, because if I look at less of the of the possibilities, how can I possibly choose the best opportunity for every advertiser? And so then, if there is a platform like the Trade Desk and I'm competing with them, and they look at every opportunity, and I'm only looking at some of them, there's no way I'm going to be able to get the kind of scale and performance they're going to get. I'm going to lose every single time. So because of that, there's this just economic pressure to consolidate. It's just economies of scale. Uh, that has driven most of the consolidation. On the flip side, on the sell side, um, 
it's the exact opposite, which is you basically only have to pay for the traffic that you generate, and then there's only a few buyers. So you only need to send requests out to a few buyers. So you're actually seeing a lot of fragmentation on the sell side where you know if you're a big publisher, you kind of have this notion of I think maybe I could just do this myself, mm-hmm. uh, which, is, which is also short-sighted. I think there is you know, a role for, for the supply-side platforms. There's like kind of like the discussion with agencies. There's a bunch of work to do. Is everybody going to take it in-house? I don't know. But I think there's just a lot of scrutiny on uh, how much people are willing to pay for that function. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the, I think the days of charging 25% on the sell side are over. Do you also look at the developments that are happening on the, on the publisher side in general? I mean, it seems like publishers, no matter who they are, what they do, have a hard time. I mean, not even like the ad tech side of it, but the whole business model. I mean, like the biggest ones now are trying to, to merge and go together and so like stand up together against uh, Google and, and, and Facebook because they basically own the traffic. Um, is that a problem for you? Well, that's a huge part of our mission. So we, we talk a lot about the open internet versus the walled gardens. And so and, and this is something also that goes all the way back to our founding, which is the internet should be big and it should be open. It shouldn't just be a few destinations. And that, that's important for, for everyone that I was talking about earlier, for, for consumers, for publishers, and for advertisers. It's probably most important for publishers because if, if, you're, if you're trying to make a living and you're the you know, New York Times or, or whatever and you just say, hey, Google, could you pay me whatever you think is fair <laughs> for all of my content? It leaves you in a really weak position. And so all those companies are saying like, hey, how could I, how could I monetize this in a way that's transparent where I, I have an opportunity to get my fair share? And that's really consistent with what we're trying to do, which is help advertisers look across everything and say, objectively, where should I put my media dollars to work? Where do I want my brand to be? And I don't want to basically, similarly, let a walled garden make that choice for me. You know, I don't want to just sort of like throw money at it and hope they put me in the right places. I don't want to get stuck in echo chambers inside of all those systems. I want to be able to look across everything. Mm. So uh, we're all – there's a, a big group of companies now that are kind of saying like, hey, we think advertising should exist outside of walled gardens. And advertisers are really starting to vote with their dollars when it comes to that. And yeah, that, that, that should be – Oh yeah, That's, so I mean, look at everything that P and G is talking about for, in, in particular, the biggest agents, biggest advertiser in the world. They're doing as much as they can outside of the walled garden, and then letting the rest of it trickle into the walled gardens as necessary. So the first thing you do is try to spend everything you can on the open web. Try to give your advertising dollar more directly to the the publishers that you care about, where you want your brand to be. And in Germany, we had this discussion a little bit, and it turned out that even most media agency um, people said, look, we only can make a decision based on um, the performance of the ad. That's the only criteria that matters for us. We can, like, I don't know, go into where should this ad be from a, like, macro, from a moral <laughs> standpoint. We, the only thing that we can care about is, is where do our um, customers get the most um, response for, for, for their money, for their investment. Um, is that, is, that, is that a good way to do it or is that, do you think that it's, it's – I mean is P&G doing it differently? So, so my approach is to make it so that they don't have to choose, right? That, that's really what I want ultimately. And I think that by taking a bunch of hidden margin out – so, so when, a, when an advertising dollar leaves an advertiser's hand, how many cents yeah, uh, arrive at the publisher? No, no, 20, 25 percent or something. Like that. It, it, it can be very small or it can be very big. And, and, and more and more often, you're, you're having fewer touch points on the chain, taking reasonable take rates and, and more of that – 
money is going to work. And it, with, when you go through the walled gardens, it's really, really difficult to tell how much is going to work. And I think it's safe to assume that it's not very much. Uh, so, so we should be able to therefore create great performance by staying out of the walled gardens. We should be able to create better performance, both because the trade desk has better tools. But it's, it's this function is the only thing our company focuses on. It's like the we joke it's the forty seventh priority at Google to be able to do a really good job of finding that perfect ad for the advertiser versus it's all we care about. So that combined with the lower fee load should make it possible, and we typically see that it is possible to have better performance in the open web than wall gardens. Okay, okay, well. Um, what other ad tech companies you see out there that actually like, have found a model that works for them, that, that grow, that seem healthy? Um, I mean, you look at so many of them and then all of a sudden they end up in some mergers or some, some new structure where you think maybe they were not in a good situation before or maybe I don't know, something, at least it wasn't, I think, the outcome that everybody expected. Um, like, who do you see that's in a good place? So I think you can look at any industry and say that there's a lot of companies that took too much venture money and you know didn't didn't ever really dial their business model in, and those are the ones who suffer. And that's as true in ad tech as it is anywhere. So I look at a bunch of companies that like like Rubicon Project, Index Exchange. Well, Rubicon Project is, is listed, and they, I mean they had like very tough times, and now they are like slowly getting going back up. I think yeah. right. Yeah. Now now they've kind of straightened out their business model, and they they are you know moving towards a, a take rate that's sustainable, and so they're figuring out what that right relationship is, or they're you know. Any business needs to figure out how much value they add and then charge an amount of money that's in line with the amount of value they add. And for, for me as an investor, I was an early investor in Rubicon. Yeah. I'm still like underwater. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, so this is like kind of Rubicon 2.0. So Rubicon was charging upwards of 25% for the SSP function. They had an additional fee on the buy side that wasn't disclosed to anyone. So you know, the, I charged 25 cents to the uh, seller and I charged 10 cents to the buyer, which is – 35 cents. <laughs> but, you know, and so they've, they've experienced a lot of margin compression, but they realized that was going to happen and they started to rebuild for it. Uh, and so, so there's, even the stock price is picking up. Again, they're doing, likely, they're doing yeah. good. Well, who, who, who else is? Rubicon, so who else is? Yeah, index exchange is basically the same philosophy, which is like we're going we're gonna to be pipes, we're going to have very low rate, and we're going to you know, make up for it in scale. They're doing well with that. And I think there's a lot of the sort of the, – there are data companies – and uh, hyper-local companies, things like that, that figured out their business model and figured out the right amount to... Like on the data side, for instance? So, uh, so on, on the data side, I was thinking of factual for, oh. in terms of hyper-local or, you know, there, there's uh, some of the smaller data companies. That you, don't, act, you don't see them much in Europe. I mean, there's it's almost none of them that really... Uh, well, thir third-party data is getting harder to do in Europe. Yeah, so uh, so in, in Europe with GDPR, it's, it's definitely going to be harder to be a third-party data company because if you, if you follow the the progression forward and you say that basically when a publisher puts up the pop-up and they say like, hey, are you okay with me sharing the data with the following companies? And like say we have to have logos on there. There's not going to be that many logos. Mm -hmm. right? they're, they're only going to ask for permission for the companies that they need. They're going to ask for the trade desk because we provide them a ton of revenue. They're going to ask for their SSP. They'll probably ask for a couple other DSPs. Um, that's probably going to be it because it's going to get harder and harder for them to justify other things, but they can. It's easy for a publisher. I think it's easy for a publisher to say, "Hey, content's not free, right? I need to pay for the content. Here's the companies that I'm using to pay for your content, so you don't have to give me cash. Uh, go do your research. Everything's cool." 
right? But it has to be kind of a, a smaller group, and that makes it really difficult for third-party companies, third-party data companies who are used to kind of just getting a pixel down and taking a bunch of data and, and putting it together, but not actually paying the website anything. But so there's that, so that in the end, there's there's few companies, at least here in Europe, there's like a couple more in the U.S., like the data companies you just mentioned, yeah. um, hyper-local companies. Yeah, it's getting it's going to get fairly compressed, and it, it, it always was supposed to. There were a lot of companies on the Lumascape that were features, not companies, and mm. you know that's sort of resolving itself the way you'd expect. Um, how much money is is going through um, the trade desk in Germany? Like, just roughly. I mean, is it like a couple hundred million a year? Is it billions a year? I don't know how much is it. Where, where's Lucas? <laughs> <laughs> His PR colleague. Yeah. I have to check. It, it's uh, it's quite a bit. I don't I don't have the numbers offhand. But it's, it's it, I mean, just like ballpark figure. Is it rather a couple hundred million, or is it more to, in, in billions? I mean, you're just taking a commission, so I don't know how much. Hundred million ish. Hundred million is about right. Lucas is nodding. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, that's, that's just Germany, not Europe. Yeah. Okay. 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 Yeah. So, so we're we're growing faster internationally than in USA. Uh, we think we can grow even faster internationally. You know, running a running a global company is hard, and uh, we're getting better and better at it. Uh, but we're growing very fast in Asia as well. Uh, but you, you don't know. have that many customers in the end, right? I mean, it's it's like if it's mostly agencies, there's how many relevant agencies do you have here in, in Germany? Maybe 10, 12 that can actually be your customers? That, that, that's it, right? I mean, you don't have to like I don't know, go and, and go to, uh, to every shop or like go to every city. It's basically like 12, 13 people that you have to meet and that you have to convince and, and that's that's the whole market for you, right? Is that correct? Yeah, that's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, I imagine, yeah. Um, but so think of growth for us more as, uh, hey, you might have previously thought of us as a, as a banner ad company, but there's much more that we can do. You know, are you in audio? Have you started your transformation into connected television? You know, all, all television is going connected. It's going at a much faster rate than I thought it was. Uh, two years ago, I was saying I think TV is probably on a ten-year plan of transformation, and then it kind of just happened. And you know, linear's kind of universally accepted as some dying technology now, and everything's moving connected. So most of our growth is going to come from CTV. Most of the agency's growth is going to come from CTV. Okay, how much do you do in revenue, like in 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 the full year, like the whole company does? Uh, so I, I, once again, not my specialty, but two or three billion dollars and. And top line, and, and that's the top line yeah. that that is staying w within the company. That's not the money that's going through. Um, no, no. So that would be spend, and then you know our, our take rate is something like twenty percent. It varies. Okay, 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 okay. It's all it's all in the public documents. Yeah, you can, and go, that's why, you can yeah, go look at yeah, all yeah, that. Yeah, I just wanted, like, as a service to our listeners, yeah. so they have a feeling for for like what the size of the company is, and yeah, so pretty uh, pretty substantial. Uh, a couple hundred million in internal revenues. Yeah, that's what my takeaway yeah, is. About a, about a ten billion market cap. Uh, 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 well, that's that's quite huge, bigger than, than Zalando and larger than the most successful German digital companies, even though they do, do other things. <laughs> um, like sometimes when I look at all this legislation and all these cookie discussions and all these ad tech discussions, I wonder um, how many people that are actually like consumers that are actually using the internet actually care about all this. I mean, looking at my experiences from when I ran an ad tech company or when talking to people like somewhere at, at home and with my family, they, I don't understand what's going on. They just click okay. They just, I don't know, check whatever they need to check to see the whole screen. Um, 
nobody cares. It seems like it's a it's a discussion for for elites and the whole like even the whole Google approach that you just um, you know mentioned seems like it's maybe helping I don't know a couple percent of the population that actually cares and actually wants to configure something. Everybody else is just going with the default um, uh, settings because they don't don't understand, they don't care, they just want to like see what they need to see and they want to like enjoy the web, and that's it. Is that a wrong perception? So I, I think primarily what consumers want is amazing content for free. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's pretty, uh, absolutely, it's pretty much what everyone wants, and that gets funded by ads. And I think people understand that sort of, uh, but uh, there is a lack of a connection in terms of that quid pro quo. That you know, people don't think about maybe often enough. But then on the flip side, I also think there is um, a responsibility that we all have to to use data well and to not collect data we don't need, not to use data too aggressively. That that is important, and it's important in the long run. And so you might not care now, but if you found out somebody did something really aggressive with your data that made you uncomfortable, you'd become very upset. But you think that's really right. happening? You think that somebody like somewhere like in rural Germany or rural Midwest USA? Is ever going to find out his data has been I don't know, misused and ever cares about that? Is that is that? I mean, I understand the moral um, uh, situation that you're in as, as somebody that understands, but like the consumer is completely um, I don't know, out of it. So they don't they don't know what's happening, and so that's that's the reason that more transparency is important. But and it really will just be if something crazy happens that they'll find out about it. And so our job is to prevent something crazy from happening. And that's it's it's one of those battles where it's like every day you got to be really really responsible and keep on top of it because otherwise, you know there was there was a trend for a while in ad tech where competition was basically who was going to be more aggressive with targeting. You know, and it's not enough to know that you went in the store. I need to know which side of the street you're walking down. And you know, a lot of the pitch decks in ad tech were things to that effect, which is how how specific can we possibly get mm. but that's really misguided especially if you're trying to like build a large brand it's not even commercially interesting to get those few users that were in that situation but then you also know that that you are crossing a line in terms of what would make people comfortable if they knew about it and if they decided to care so that's more the bar that we're shooting for which is like i want to be able to have an open conversation with any consumer and have them be like that's fine thanks for the content mm. you know But I mean, my impression is you would agree that my impression is, 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 is or you share my impression that like 80, 90% don't care, don't understand, don't really worry. And like the, all the press we read about it, that's journalists that have like made an effort to like dive into it and that really like want to understand and, and want to like write about it. But I think basically it's just a very, very few people that, that, that reaches that. So I actually think most consumers have this sort of vague sensation that a bunch of data is being collected or used because they've because they've read the articles, but they don't really know what's happening. And that's sort of the worst situation to be in, which is like people kind of just assume that Alexa is listening to everything and turning it into targeting data. I don't know if that's true or not. Nobody knows if that's true or not. There's no transparency. And so I think you know, there is basically we've – because there's not enough transparency, we've created some amount of distrust. And that's what you're seeing, and that's why the reporters are picking up on it, right? And so I think it is – it's, it's – um, I generally agree with what you're saying. Most people kind of don't care, and most people just want the free content. But I, I do think there's more to the story than that. Okay. Um, a, cu a couple of months ago, there was a, this, this Mark Zuckerberg hearing um, when he was asked um, about, like, you know, what he was doing with Facebook during the election and everything. And then, like, 
the question that he was asked by I don't know some I think it was senators in the in the, in, in the U.S. It seemed like they totally had no understanding of, of what they were doing, and that, that was so super on such a superficial uh, layer that you know. And then knowing how complicated this whole thing is. I was wondering, like, okay, that doesn't make sense at all to like have him being questioned by these people. That, that just is, 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 leads to no consequences or like leads to no results that can actually matter. Um, what was your perception when you saw that? So it's it's nothing new that government has trouble keeping up with technology, and that regulation in particular has trouble keeping up with technology. So it shouldn't it shouldn't be surprising that a senator who's not an expert, who's a generalist in a lot of areas isn't like a hundred percent up on all the nuances, right? Like that, well, he, that, just, he was 5% up on it. So it's like, I would explain like maybe 70, 80% was okay, but like maybe not five or 6%. A few of them are pretty bad. <laughs> I, 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 try to, I try to give those guys the benefit of the doubt and you know, they're under a lot of pressure <laughs> just trying to get through the hearing. Uh, but I think more generally that points to like, what is the role of regulation and what is the role of self-regulation in our industry? And really it, it is up to us. To, to do the right thing and to figure it out and to work more with regulators. You know, a lot of times the regulators see it as a as a adversarial relationship, like they're trying to, you know, put the rules on or whatever. We would love it to be much more collaborative. And in fact, we've been out ahead of the regulators on almost everything for many years. Like we've had all kinds of layers of self-regulation programs where we've created ground rules for what we think is okay, what we think consumers would be okay with, you know, that, you know, not 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 just you know do what we say and say what we do, but also like where is that comfort level? And so we're gonna we're gonna continue to try to to level up. I mean, the the thing is, um, some people like don't like to be in a situation where like the industry players decide on what is okay, what is not okay. I mean, even though there's some people that maybe do it in a, in, a, in a right way or have the right morals to like, but usually you'd find you'd be more comfortable knowing that there's like some external authority to make those calls and not just the people that are involved with the, the whole business, right? Yeah, that's why really it would be best if it was collaborative because you also don't want somebody who doesn't understand it to make the rules. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. and, and so how do, you find, how do you find a group of people that are, you know, altruistic and understand uh, where the limits should be but also understand the technology? Uh-huh. And I think um, we just have to – most of that should come from inside of industry and then there, of course, should be oversight and, you know, transparency. We should work with – Governments around the world. The, 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 the patchwork problem is also, you know, unfortunate and, and difficult to deal with. You know, we're, we have a new we have a new law in California now that uh, goes beyond GDPR, and so we're we're trying to digest that and figure out how to, you know, handle things differently in different jurisdictions. All of a sudden, I mean, as an ad tech company, you have to have to look at politics quite a bit, right? I mean, it used to be like they were it was a different universe. Now, all of a sudden, it has to do with like real politics. <laughs> Well, yeah, there, there's politics, but we tr- we try to stay out of the the sort of political side of it, and instead go straight to what's the law, uh, and then what do people care about? Those are the two things that matter, and and what people care about hopefully is out in front of the law. When when the law starts to regulate things that people don't care about, uh, that's where things become difficult. Um, different topic. You. Um uh, you're based in Southern California. You're living the the good surfer life there. You're also yeah. running a illicit company. That's a quite a quite a good uh, a mixture. Um, and when we talked before the podcast, you said that that it's also like a bit of a strategy for you to like have 250 engineers on the team. 
um, to hire them away from Silicon Valley, not so much in Silicon Valley, but elsewhere in Southern California and in Colorado and elsewhere around the world. Why is that? Yeah, it's really a strategy that grew. And so it grew because I lived in Southern California in this little beach town, and that's where I wanted to live. And then I had a bunch of friends who were awesome at building technology. And, you know, we'd worked for other companies. And so I knew that I'd be able to hire some people there. It's obviously not a huge hiring market, but I'd be able to hire very high-quality people. And then when I do hire people, they'll stay for the long term. And so we can we can have a, a long-term relationship. We're working on something that's really esoteric, really difficult. And so, you know, if people are coming in for a year and leaving, that's really damaging to the company. I mean, this is this is the way I always thought about it. And so after we got sort of saturated in, in our, our market in Southern California, we had one employee who wanted to move to Boulder, Colorado with his family just because that's where they wanted to go. And I said, okay, well, this is pretty early on in the company. Like, there's no way we're losing this person. So sounds like we have a Boulder team now. <laughs> and uh, and so we got good at doing remote. You know, that was that was in go-to-meeting days. There wasn't any Zoom. And so the tools were, were not as good, but they were good enough, and we, and we started figuring out. And then once we, you know, we found a great hiring market in Boulder, too, a lot of amazing people, great startup scene. Also, not Silicon Valley culturally. It, it's, it's really, really different uh, than, than that. And uh, that, that created the foundation of our, of our sort of philosophy on hiring, and then we've been able to replicate that in London and in Sydney and in a, in a bunch of other cities. And we became this uh, really, like, tight-knit, really high retention engineering team that's fully remote and we got super good at it so then we can even hire people that you know work from home or or whatever and make it really work well and so you know we've been able to stay out of you know i think in silicon valley a lot of people are totally okay working a job for eight months or a year and they think that's really really fine and it might be in some other companies but that wouldn't work for us so, you know, we've been trying to really invest in long-term relationships with engineers. And it would work for you because ad tech is so much more complicated than just, I don't know, building social network technology or something? Yeah, I mean, not that there aren't other really complicated things being built out there. Of course there are. But but this this really specialized corner of ad tech that we sit in where things have to be done at very high scale with a lot of precision is uh, it's, it's specialized work. Okay, okay. What do you what do you think is the ne next biggest challenge for for the trade desk? What, what are you working on right now? So trade desk is mostly just trying to figure out growth and, and being a being a bigger team, more people on the teams, and for in engineering, that's the ability to multitask across more issues. I've always been super paranoid about the, kind of the peanut butter effect of you know spreading ourselves too thin and trying to do everything. So we've been very very focused on a, you know, however many projects we think we can really do at once. And that might be in the old days, one or two or three, and now it's five or six or seven and it becomes much more difficult to manage. And so we're trying to keep alive what our customers love about us, which is that we're super responsive. We're always at the front. We ship software every week. Every, every week you have an opportunity to get some great new tool from us. If you ask for something, we can turn it around fast, like, you know, a complex project in a month and a half or something like that. Uh, to be able to continue to do that, but then not be making mistakes when we're, you know, important mistakes <laughs> when we're, when we're uh, going through that process. That's, that's what we're trying to figure out now and doing well at it. All right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So we'll be watching out for the trade desk. Also, um, I'm sure you expect the stock price to go up. So whoever wants to make money, look out for the trade desk. It's, 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 it's NASDAQ listed, right? It is on the NASDAQ, yeah. TTD. 
and it's 10 billion right now. Oh, something like that. I don't, Ooh. I don't pay super close attention. Uh, but can it go up to like, I don't know, to, can it double? Well, so the, the total addressable market for what we're doing, we often say is a trillion dollars. And so as, as, because that, that's what all of advertising is, uh, We think all of advertising will become digital, will become programmatic. Connected television is proving that right now. And so, who knows? I, I mean, I would, I would like to talk to you about like stock and, 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 and that's, that whole situation that's been created since the, the WeWork disaster and everything. But I'm sure it's, that it's not something that you like, pay close attention to, right? Yeah, no, I'm really just focused on growing the business. You know, we, we knew that going public would be some amount of a distraction, but you know, we just have focused on what we do best, stocks up. A thousand percent since IPO, doing pretty well, uh, but we don't pay a lot of attention to the ups and downs. Uh, yeah, that's, that's a lot of troubles right now. All right, um, thank you very much for coming over, yeah. and uh, and good luck with you know growing the business. All right, thanks for having me. Cool studio. <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs>